attention architects, and creative minds. Get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. Hey, it's Jeff here. What you're about to hear is the recording from our weekly Context and Clarity live show that I co-host with Catherine McPhail. Every week, we bring in a special guest that will help us dig even deeper and find even more clarity around the most popular context and clarity topics. This version of context and clarity is simulcast to Facebook and LinkedIn and YouTube and Twitch. Oh, and did I mention that they're live? We're operating without a net, so we may hit a few rough patches and stumble every once in a while. But I think these guests and these conversations are important enough that we really shouldn't keep them to ourselves. So with that, let's jump into this week's episode. All right, Entree Architect community, it's 4 p.m. Eastern, which means it's time for the con- the Entree Architect Context and Clarity live session for Thursday, April 22nd. 2021. Thank you for joining us today. As you're coming in, say hi. Let us know that you're here. Whether you're on Facebook or you're on LinkedIn or you're on YouTube or you're on Twitch. I know there's a bunch of you out there, a giant following over there on Twitch. Uh, Say hi. Let us know that you're here and let us know where you're joining the conversation from today. If you're listening to this on the podcast version, which will come out in a few days from the time of this recording. Hi, welcome. Thanks for listening. Um, What you're about to experience is a conversation that is a live, it's a live stream. We call it our simulcast Context and Clarity Live session that Catherine and I uh, co-host every Thursday afternoon with a special guest. And we will introduce that special guest here in just a few minutes. But if you've never joined us before, one thing you need to know is that the reason that we come here every Thursday afternoon is so that we can find clarity around the topics that matter most to you, the architect. And it doesn't matter uh, if you're the employee of a firm, you may be dreaming of doing your own thing. You may have even circled the date on the calendar and said, hey, 2021 is my year. You may be on the runway to starting your own thing right now, or you may have had a firm for a year or 10 years or what, 25 years, Catherine? Yep. Yep. You may more, be even more now. It just keeps more every day. Even more. It goes up every day. That's exactly right. So you may be, uh, no matter what your context is, these topics that we cover, one topic every day, every week for our live simulcast version, all of these topics are the need to know topics for the success of architects just like you. And so thank you for joining us from wherever you are. Again, say hi. Let us know that you're here. We see Randy Wilburn out there. Hey, Randy. Randy was our special guest last week. Glad to have you in the audience today and everyone else. I see a lot of familiar names. See Lucas Gray out there. Hi, Lucas. And Margarita. Mark LePage. It's a familiar sounding name. Glad Mark is joining us today. Looks like Jefferson is joining us from Los Angeles and John Jones from Connecticut. Hans up there in Portland, Maine. Glad all of you are joining us today. One thing Catherine has done is uh, add a little link to the bottom left of the screen. If you're on Facebook, 
because of Facebook privacy policy, we cannot see your name right now because we're using Restream as our streaming platform here. Uh, It's just a matter of privacy. We can't see your name because you're in a private group right now. All we see is Facebook user. If you would like to change that, if you would like for us to be able to see your name and call you out by name and ask your question, make your comment by name, if you're willing, you can connect your Facebook to Restream using that link that you see on the screen right there right now, chat.restream.io slash FB. Um, If you do that, we'll be able to see your name uh, just like we would any other day inside the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. So that's a little bit of housekeeping, Catherine. What did I forget? Well, I think you you covered it all, Jeff. You've made a forgotten our guest. I haven't forgotten him. I still, he's, he's in the green room right now. Mm -hmm. And, um, he's, he's a, uh, uh, very, very relatable guy, very kind guy. He has been very kind to us in terms of the condition of our green room, because it's, you know, it's not the nicest. Yeah. Um, Especially for people who are involved with architecture, we could spruce that up a little bit. Yeah, we, we could spruce it up. You know, it's not as nice as some of the late night shows, but we do what we can. We'll upgrade that as we get more sponsors, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll have a nicer green room and we'll be able to uh, uh, afford more treats in the green room. So Ember Mugs, if you hear us, um, you know, you could sponsor this. Let us have a nice <laughs> green room if, you, if, uh, if you're out there. But with that, I don't want to keep our guest uh, I don't want to keep our guests waiting any longer. I don't want to keep you waiting any longer because I think this is going to be a fantastic conversation today. There's going to be a lot to learn today. And uh, all week, we've been considering topics around the profession, put that in quotes, the profession of architecture. We've been looking at it from a 30,000 foot view, all different perspectives. Monday, we started out with origin stories. What inspired you? What got you into this profession? What led you to architecture school and to become an architect, if that is indeed what you are? Uh, on Tuesday, we uh, we took a little bit different view and we looked at associations and organizations. What is the value of your membership in these associations, institutes, societies. And a, and a different way to look at that as well is if these are organizations that represent you, that represent the profession, what value does the profession get out of your membership in those organizations? So we talked about that on Tuesday. And then yesterday, we took even a different view of things. We looked outside of the profession to other professions. And we said, what can we learn from the successes of other professions that we can then turn around and apply within the profession of architecture. So that's when that's where we've been this week. Where did you start? What are you doing? You know, what's the value of your memberships? What's your value of being involved in these groups? What can we learn from other professions? And then today we're going to talk about the value of an architect. And so with that, I need to introduce our guest. Our guest today is an author. He's a former CEO. He's a founder. He's a podcaster. And He's a repurposed architect. His 50-year career and a passion for design, for building a better world, and for building a better practice have armed him with lessons we all need to learn, whether you're a big firm, a small firm, or something in between. Patrick McLamey, welcome to Context and Clarity Live. I'm very happy to be here, and I'm, I'm, I, I love the introduction, and I love the way your show works with all the names popping up on the side including my good friend, Mark LePage. That was, uh, uh, Mark and I, I started my podcast uh, life with Mark and he and I have become good friends. We haven't met in person yet, but I know him, I think like my brother. Uh, so uh, Mark, if you're listening, uh, I'm, I'm glad you're listening. I think you and I have talked so much, it's hard for me to imagine you'll learn anything new, but stay tuned, maybe you will. <laughs> And that and that story is so 2020, right? So 2021. Um, there are a lot of people that I feel an awful lot closer to. Uh, some that I've I've just met, right, virtually speaking, that that um, never met in person. So uh, I love that story, and I'm glad that you and Mark started that podcast journey. For those of you that are watching or listening right now, if you haven't checked out 
the Build Smart podcast, you need to do that because there are a lot of lessons to learn there. The storytelling is top-notch. The production is top-notch. Um, it's very, very digestible, and I encourage everybody to, to uh, check that out and to listen to those episodes. There's an episode zero and episodes one and two are out right now. You can find those at Gable Media, G-A-B-L media.com. Now, in that introduction, Patrick, and you actually say this in, in episode one of the yep. uh, Build Smart podcast, you say you're repurposed. Yeah, repurposed architect. What does that mean to be repurposed? Yes. Well, uh, it, it means, you know, people said, okay, you're going to step down from H. Okay, you're retiring. No. <laughs> to me, retirement is a uh, rocking chair and maybe too much television. <laughs> and uh, I don't have a rocking chair. And uh, my wife and I watch almost zero television. And uh, my, my belief is that we have things to do as long as I can uh, lift a pencil or maybe lift a mouse these days. I've, I've got things to do, things that I've spent a lifetime learning about. So I'm still working. I'm just not earning a living like uh, other people that are younger than I am. And uh, my passion is to help the cause of design. That's basically why I wrote the book. It's, it's a book about HOK. That's true. But it turned into a book that helps architects understand how to be successful. And uh, I believe that uh, the, the profession of architecture, the, the job of our, how architects are viewed in our society has been eroded and pushed to the side. In my 50-year career, certainly that's true. But I think in the last 100 years, there was a time when architects were seen as pillars of society, like uh, doctors and maybe preachers or ministers. And uh, now uh, people wonder about, well, why do I need an architect? Can I just get a contractor to build it? And architects are often viewed by uh, people as uh, as something to be avoided or something to be, to, you know, it's like a torture. You, you, you want to get through it as quickly as possible with the least damage. Uh, I've heard people say, why would I hire an architect? It'll just make the building cost a little bit what more and not work quite as well. Hmm. And so we, we, have a, uh, we have a perception problem, and it's more than optics. I think we ourselves as architects, as designers, people in our community need to understand what our value really is so that we can basically put that out there to people. And it starts back with our perception of ourselves. What is design? What's the value of design? When I meet people on the street, they say, well, what are, what are you? I'm an architect. Oh, but do you design houses? Well, no, I don't. But what styles do you like? And uh, I saw a house that I liked that was uh, modern or Cape Cod or this or that style. And that's the skin deep lipstick on a pig side of design. I think great design is certainly more than skin deep. Great design solves the, 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 the whole issue of how a building meets the ground, fits the site, fits the owner's budget and program, uh, allows for a flow of people inside. It's great buildings are safe, they're affordable, uh, they're green, they're a whole series of things. And they're really easy to look at and they fit in well with their neighborhood. They're harmonious. So, most people don't think about design like that. I'm going to give you an example. When I, when I went around HOK, I would ask people, who's doing the best design work? And somebody would always say, well, I think HOK is. And somebody else would say, well, I think. I <laughs> they think, were looking for a raise. That's it. Uh, I think SOM or I, somebody would say one of the Black Cape architects. I say, no, I think Steve Jobs. What is this? It's a smartphone it's really a portal into the universe for me and for people that can use it. Let's just talk about why and how. This is beautifully crafted and designed. There's more stuff packed into this little slim package and it's affordable. It's a few hundred dollars. 
that allows people to, to, to surf the world. It allows people to browse every book I think ever written. It allows people to watch movies and stay in touch with them. Oh, and it's also a phone. Did I mention that? <laughs> uh, this is great design. And it's easy on the eyes, and it's good to look at. It's easy on the hand. It's easy to hold. With one thumb or more these days uh, by voice, I can do everything. This is great design. This is great design. Um, how did that happen? Did Steve Jobs go out and hire a, a cell phone designer and a manufacturer to build it? Maybe a low-bid manufacturer? No. So the first thing I ask is, well, how do you create the climate for great design to happen? And you have to have a very demanding owner like Steve Jobs that really wants something more than skin deep, that wants something that actually works well. And if you as an architect seek that same thing, you can actually help bring yourself and your firm and your clients along to, great, to, to seeing and understanding greater value in design. And if you can get yourself to that point, you can become trusted, build trust with your clients and become a trusted advisor where your, your client comes to you and says, Mr. or Ms. Architect, I wonder what's your opinion about this? And I think too often architects see clients just the opposite. Oh, I've got a client. That's great. The client is my opportunity to express myself and to create something that's never been done. And maybe I'll make the cover of the architectural mags. Maybe. But that's that's the that's a path toward. Uh, I think oblivion, you might make the mags. But if you really want to follow the true path, it's like the it's, it's very biblical. The true course for an architect is uh, arduous and it's hard damn work to do a great job of designing. And if you're going to do a great job of designing and get great results, then it's not going to be some new look that goes out of style in a few years. It's going to be something that's deeper than that. And again, it's going to be something like this. Um, and uh, how do you do that? Well, when I was a student, more than 50 years ago, more than probably most everybody, uh, earlier than most everybody was even born, um, I carried around with me The Fountainhead, the book by Ayn Rand. And the, 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 my reason I carried it around is because the star of the book was an architect, Howard Rourke. And he was an uncompromising guy. And mm. I loved that. He, uh, he wouldn't take a job that required him to compromise his principles for design. And if he couldn't get work, then he became, as people who've read the book or seen the movie know, he, be he became a stonecutter for a while until he could get back into architecture. And I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be hard work. So that's one, one character is hard work, uncompromising, and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to have no work and I'm going to not have enough to eat for a while. But someday, as it happened in the book, some big client is going to see the value in me and it's going to raise me up out of the depths and put me up on a pedestal as a, as a famous architect. And then I'm going to get to design great buildings. It's all going to change. I, I promise you. That's one. That's what I, I left school thinking about architecture in that way. And I'll bet many of the people here on this podcast did too. Here's another way. Um, Michelangelo. Michelangelo was an architect and a painter and a sculptor. He was a Renaissance man, but let's just talk about Michelangelo and how did he work? He had patrons. He had patrons. Uh, he had the, the Medici family that were bankers in Florence, Italy. And then after that, he had the Pope in, in Rome and he did work for them and they fed him and clothed him and gave him a studio to work in and got the best kind of Carrero marble farm to sculpt with and so on. And he did great work that is resonating to this day. So he was a designer who needed somebody to help support his work. And uh, in a way, Michelangelo and Howard Rourke are the same. Howard Rourke finally got a patron later in his career. Michelangelo was recognized early as a genius and he had patrons from almost the beginning. What about today? 
Are we going to wait for a patron to show up and say, gee, that's a great design for that house that you did or that something. And I want you to come and be my architect and I'm going to make you rich and famous. No, I think the job of the firm, the architecture firm today is to become and listen to this. It's important now. It's going to be a quiz. <laughs> become the patrons for the design service that we provide. That is, I want the firms to take care of the people inside who are doing the design work and taking care of clients. The firms need to be the patrons because people do good work if they're well fed and if they get a steady paycheck and they can take care of their families. And if they can get a bonus at the end of a successful year, and if they have other people around them as in a guild to learn from, how do you build that? You build it by building a great firm. And when I say a great firm, not necessarily big, not necessarily, but a great firm means it's a place where there's this good ferment of good design where people are challenging each other to be their best, but it's got this umbrella or this envelope around it of good professional practice, good sound financial management, uh, good management of the projects, good operations, good technical architecture to back up great design. And that's, to me, that's the firm acting as the patron or the architects of today. And if you're a firm of one person, and I know there may be some of you, you're going to have to do all of that. You're going to have to be your own patron and your own financial manager and your own technical architect. You're going to have to shag your own work. So that's hard. It's a hard job. If you have a couple of people or three or maybe eight or 10, average size firm in the U.S. is eight people. When I started 53 years ago, average size firm in the U.S. was eight people. If you go to the, to the U.K., the RIBA, Royal Institute of British, eight people. It's the average size firm. So we are practicing at a small scale for the most part. I didn't live in a small scale environment. I, I, I went to work for one firm, HOK, with the idea that I would never stay, that I would get some good experience, get, get, get registered and then go west somewhere and become the next Frank Lloyd Wright. And I stayed because HOK took care of me. They were my patron. They gave me a career, a place to grow up and people to mentor me along the path. So I, I can't emphasize enough that if you want to do great work, and reestablish architecture as at the center of our society, we have to reform how we practice so that our firms are successful. Uh, success is determined by first, you gotta eat. You gotta you gotta be able to bill your clients and collect the bills and pay the bills yourself, pay your employees so that regularly uh, people are fed. You know, and if you if you are well fed and well taken care of and you practice architecture a whole lifetime, you get pretty damn good at it. If you're stressed and thinking, well, I'm just going to burn the midnight oil again and try to make one more breakthrough project with some to impress somebody, you're living on the edge. And I, I want us to be living in the center of things, not the edge. I want us to be in the center of society and I want us to be I want us to be well fed and well paid for the work that we do because Design work is really challenging, hard work. So we should be well rewarded for it. And we have to, we have to learn that ourselves. Then we have to convey that to our clients by showing our clients what real design is and what value it, it brings. I'm going to pause to take a breath because I've been on a little <laughs> diatribe here, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm repurposed and I'm on a mission as a repurposed architect to to help other architects, younger people, seize back the center of our society and and put design back in the center where it should be. So <sighs> there you go. The, the passion comes out and that's great. And that's really, uh, that's really appreciated. The, you know, you mentioned several times this idea, there, there's the patron, you know, the Michelangelo patron or the Howard Rourke patron the Steve Jobs uh, as the client, et cetera. One of the things that I can hear people asking right now is, well, number one, how do I how do I find those patrons? How do I find those clients? Yeah. And yeah. I think there's also this thing that that 
there, there's this struggle. Maybe maybe it's a philosophical thing, but should yeah. every client be that great client, or no. basically, no. do we need to appeal to every client, or do we need to find those great clients, and then how do we find just those great clients? So, uh, Jeff, let me just. I'm not, I, I, I don't want to convey that great, that in order to be a good architect, you have to have patrons. I'm saying you become your own patron. Right. You learn how to run a, uh, the, the practice of architecture, your, your practice, whether it's three people, eight people, or a hundred people, you learn how to run it successfully. And most architects, I think it's the way the brain is wired, don't like or don't care for the business side. And many of them were taught along in architecture school somewhere that making money is somehow not supporting great design, that you, you should spend every last nickel or penny of your fee to try a little bit harder to make that design one turn better. And actually I, it took me a while after I read the fountainhead and joined HOK, it took me a while, a couple of years, to figure out that that was actually the wrong path. That the best work is done by people who have patrons, who have steady jobs and can actually learn from others on the job and over a period of time, because architecture takes years to learn. That over time, if you have a steady job and you have mentors in the firm, then you can learn and get better and, and grow into the, mature architect that we need you to be, whether you, it's a, as a designer or a technical architect or a man at project, whatever it is, uh, people need that time. Um, so uh, the firm needs to be the patron and firms need to be well run and firms need to have steady work so they don't run out of work. What happens? What happens when firms run out of work is they lay off their staff. Right. So the investment that they've made as let's say patrons of the people that work there, the investment that they've made in those people is all wasted. Those people leave, they scatter, they go to other places, they get jobs at Safeway or, or doing something else, maybe if they get out of the practice. And the, the firm loses that investment they, they made in those people. George Helmuth, the founder of HOK, 1955, was the son of an architect and the nephew. His father and his uncle practiced architecture in St. Louis, Missouri at the turn of the 1900s. And there's just a little story about it, that as he was growing up, sometimes his father and his uncles, who were, who were, uh, they were brothers and they were partners, but they didn't always get along. Both of them wanted to design buildings. And they, they finally got to a point where if I, if I win the client, I get to design it and you get to help me kind of thing. Does that bring any bells with people? That's a partnership of convenience. That's not designing a firm. Uh, my book is Designing World Class Firm. You have to design, put as much effort into designing a firm as you do in designing a building. And so Helma thought about this. Uh, he, he watched his father and his uncle struggle. He called it a roller coaster. Boom, when they got a, a, a project with a fee, there was money in the family. They, the, the firm hired in those days, draftsmen to do the work. And at the end of the project, if there was no new work, it was back down again, just to the two brothers. So young George Helmuth wanted to be an architect, join his father and his uncle in the firm. But when he graduated, it was the Great Depression. Now we've just had uh, a year and a month, let's say, of coronavirus shut lockdown. Let's call it a year, just around numbers. The Great Depression lasted 10 years. 10 years. At one point, the unemployment rate in the Great Depression was 25%. So you think this has been bad times. The Great Depression was the granddaddy of all bad times. His father and his uncle couldn't hire him. He graduated in 1932, just in the early stage of the Great Depression. George Helmuth ended up wrangling a job with the city of St. Louis as a junior architect designing restrooms and uh, park benches and, and uh, bus stops. And he did this for six years because that's all he could find. And uh, so this seared him. It made him think deeply about, oh, 
there's got to be some way to have a firm that can be stable with steady work so you can keep people. So it's a longer story that I won't go into. But he basically formulated four principles for a what he called a depression-proof firm. Right. And uh, the first one was the most important, that people are the most precious resource a firm has. It's not your computers or your tables and chairs or your your the 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 office space, it's your people. And uh, if you can, uh, what you should do is hire and keep the very best people you can, keep them long-term, give them room to grow up inside your firm. The longer you keep them and the more they grow, the more valuable they are and the better your firm will be. So it, it builds on itself. Okay, so that's principle one. Well, how do you do that? How do you keep a firm, how do you keep people busy? Full-time marketing. George Hamilton was, we think, the first leader of a firm to become a full-time marketer. He was the principal of HOK, the H of HOK, and he didn't design. He marketed. That was his passion. And um, it took time, but he wanted to bring steady work so that the people that were hired could be kept on. I started at HOK not knowing any of this. And for 50 years exactly to the day, I had a paycheck every two weeks. Every two weeks. The check never bounced. The boss never came in and said, gee, I can't pay you this week. I'll pay you as soon as I can. Uh, it always worked. How did it happen? Well, it was Helmuth's principle of marketing full time, backed up by a great public relations program so that people knew who HOK was. And then he did something really interesting. Again, all about people. Um, he said the, the key to having a stable practice is diversity. Now, today, these days, we talk about diversity in terms of racial and ethnic and gender diversity. But he was talking about diversified practice. Architects were doing schools when HOK was founded. There was a baby boom after World War II. He saw that the school market would eventually taper off as the baby boom passed and that architects would be scrambling to find something else to do. So as HOK was doing school work, and it was easy for HOK to find school work because there were school districts across the, 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 the city of St. Louis and the suburbs were expanding. He spent his time looking for other kinds of buildings to design. So he diversified HOK and they were hard. It was hard work. He, he won an airport project for the city's airport. He won a prison project from the, from the Federal Bureau of Prisons that was near St. Louis. Uh, he, won some, he won some office buildings. He won a, a housing project and so on. So he diversified by the building types. And his idea was that the building type diversity was, would be like the pistons of an automobile. This is really old-fashioned because... Now with electric cars, they don't have pistons, but he said pistons of an automobile, when one is down, the other one's going to be up. So if school buildings are down, airports or hospitals are going to be up. So diversify your practice as much as you can by building type and by geography. If things are slow in St. Louis, where the firm was founded, let's open a new branch somewhere else and let's let's open that so that Maybe if St. Louis is slow, Chicago or San Francisco, where I ended up, is going to have work. And we can share the work between the two offices and keep the good people working. And um, let's also diversify the offerings of the practice. Some clients need architects. Some need interior design. Some need programmers or planners. Some need building engineering services and, and so on. So. Helmut's idea was to be able to offer a menu of services for whatever the client wanted so that the idea was that you would hang on to good clients. Not Now, somebody, I think you said, Jeff, not every client's a great client, maybe. Some clients, um, and you have to use some good judgment, some are great clients that you can become friends and advisors to. Others, maybe you should... Make not make them your client. You should you should fire your clients, not work for them again because 
it's a bad experience or they're slow to pay or or uh, they treat you they treat you in an uh, in an unprofessional way uh, the list goes on so Helmuth was always on the lookout for clients not just jobs not just jobs projects but clients why good clients become repeat clients and repeat clients help what feed the workload of the of the staff you want to keep so diversify 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 market full-time and diversify your practice finally he had seen his father and his uncle in their practice their marriage of convenience always clashing so his idea there was to set up a, a new kind of firm where the principals or the partners hok was a was they were principals had different jobs Helmuth was the marketer obata was the designer George Casabon was the production architect. Uh, he said, if you give people different jobs, two good things happen. One is you reduce the conflict of people fighting over things. And two, if you do something every day for a long time, you get pretty damn good at it. And then you get to be expert. So those four principles, again, people are the key. Full-time marketing, diversify, 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 and and specialize in your leadership. That was his key. HOK today is still very much built on that on those four principles, plus a couple of others have been added over the years. Does that mean only big firms can be successful? No, I do not believe that. I think small firms can be too, and there's some advantages. But if you are a small practitioner, you have to figure the same thing out. How do you become a patron to the people that are in your office and your firm? How do you take care of them and keep the best ones so they can get better and better and help you become more and more competitive, do better and better work? That's the secret to the whole thing. Yeah, that, <laughs> that, that was going to be my next question is if, if we just take the middle two principles there, the diversify, diversify, diversify. Well, that, that was the third one, I guess the marketing <laughs> full-time marketing and yeah. then the diversify, diversify, diversify. Right. If you're a small firm, maybe you're solo, maybe you're three to five, maybe you're eight right. average right. size. Right. How do you apply in, in a back <clears> that up <throat> half a step because when you said full-time marketing, yeah. there's about 99% of the audience that just got a, a chill down their spine, right? I said, oh, what do you mean I've got to be yeah. marketing full time? I don't even like marketing to begin with. Um, yeah. So, well, Yes, most architects, I mean, there you go. Most architects don't like to market. And most architects don't like to bill and collect money, right? Right. That's a fact. Uh, Find somebody else to be your partner or your colleague and get them to do it. That's basically my, my advice. Uh, if you love design and you think you've got gifts for design, get somebody out because you have to do these other things. You have to get work to be successful. You have to manage your, yourself, your project. You have to bill and collect money from clients. Sometimes that becomes a great big challenge. You have to get people that, don't mind doing that. And in fact, are geared to do that, love to do that. A big firm like HOK, I started as a designer and became a manager uh, because I was good at organizing things and I didn't mind billing clients and collecting money. I once had a flight to, to uh, uh, across the Pacific Ocean to a client in, in uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, that owed us a quarter million dollars and um, I was under instructions not to leave until I got the money. So I sat in his office for three days. He wouldn't see me at first. And then finally, by the third day, he broke down and wrote me a check. I mean, so you, you have to, if, if, you, if you're a sole practitioner or a small partnership, you've got to find some, either you've got to be a real Renaissance person and do all of those things well, or you need to find somebody in your, in your firm or that you know that can help you do them. Those things, if they're left undone, you'll struggle because mm -hmm. those, those are fundamental to any, pra any practice. Yeah. You got to get the work, you got to manage the work, you got to collect the money. That's, and besides design, 
if you want to be like Michelangelo and be a designer and have a patron, you could go join a big firm as a designer maybe and have a great life. Mm-hmm. But if you want to run your own shop, the responsibilities that come with it have to be taken seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Catherine, I think you were going to ask something. Well, I, I was just wondering if you're by yourself, you can't spend all the time marketing. So do you just divide that up logically right. into your full time? Yeah. So make sure you spend 20 hours a week marketing and 20 hours a week designing and sure whatever the other 20 was uh, doing all the rest of it. Just like Tuesday is wash, washing day and Thursday, you know, Thursday is groceries. Well, you, Tuesday is marketing day and Thursday is collections day. You have to you have to have a discipline about it and not say, well, I'll put that off because I'm really in the middle of a design and I love what I'm doing. And pretty soon the bills won't get collected uh, mm-hmm. or that new job that you were hoping for doesn't come through. Hope is not a strategy for, for a firm. You need to replace hope with action. Mm. It's only taking action to take care of yourself and your firm that counts. Uh, you can you can be very happy when there's some good luck, but if you have a practice that's based on hope, I think you well you probably already know how difficult this is. Uh, have I got people pretty well riled up? <laughs> oh, we, have, we, do have, we do have some questions. Should I should I yeah. um, put some of those up? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So. Um, Here's one here. Ryan says, how does this patron firm concept mesh with practices who make extensive use of 1099s? And a lot of the people who are running their own firm by themselves have contract help. Yes. Well, then, you know, it's it's just like it would be in anything. As big as HOK is, we also use people that are specialized consultants from time to time. They have to become at least temporarily like good partners. You have to have, if you're a single practitioner and you, you, you contract out for, I don't know, production drawings or accounting or uh, something, you, you have to have good relationships with people that you absolutely trust, like brothers and sisters, uh, to, to come through for you. Uh, if, if you find that they, you can't trust them to do it, find somebody else. Just... Mm. Uh, there, there is no two ways about this. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking about that recently, trying to hire some tenant contractors, and I, I realized that I'm actually adding to my team, and it and it matters. Their character and their yeah. more than just their abilities matters a lot. Yeah, I mean, um, Gio Obata used to say to me, because uh, uh, I worked for him for years, he said the three most important things for the for the uh, for the architect, or get the job, get the job, get the job. That if you don't have a client, you don't have a job, you can't design anything, and you can't get paid. So you're out of business. You have to market. You have to get the work. I, I would just modify that. What Gio used to say: say, get the client, get the client, get the client. It's clients who have jobs. Jobs don't come without clients, and you need to become. Once you get a client, you should treat them like gold and do everything you can to stick close to that client and become not only a friend, a social friend maybe, but a trusted advisor to that client because trusted, uh, trusting relationships tend to, tend to last. I have had clients um, over the years that have become friends, trusted, and Clients that have continued to give uh, us work because of that relationship. Probably everybody listening to this has some relationship like that. You need enough of that to take care of your firm. If you don't have enough of that, you need to do some marketing. And even if you have trusted friends, you know, if they're all in, let's say, in the school marketplace, if the school marketplace is slow as it is here in California or where I live, there aren't going to be any schools to design. So you still need to look at your diversity of, of the diversifying your practice. So you don't run out of things to do. I mean, hell, Michelangelo, look, he was an architect, a sculptor, and a painter, and a muralist. He, he, he was a Renaissance man. Your firm needs to be so broad-based that you don't run out of things to do. 
maybe your client doesn't need an architect today, but maybe you can do some master planning or maybe you can help them program their next expansion just to keep that relationship intact. You got to think client, think client. But it, and I, I love that statement because I think one thing we miss out on a lot is, you know, back, back to that idea of what's, what's the value of an architect? What's the, what's value do you provide <laughs> for your clients? Is it just design? No. Right. It's advice. It's expertise. It might be that master plan. It might be whatever else they need and expanding that base, as you say, of value, I think is really important. Yeah. Jeff, let me just expand on your expansion. (laughs) Perfect. I'll tell you what it means to be a, to be a, a trusted advisor to a client. And I just ask you and your, your, your listeners, um, have you ever had the occasion where you've met with a client and they have a um, they have a a brief or they have a program for a new building or an addition or something, <clears throat> and you're selected and you get started on it and you realize after a day or a week, you know, if I had only been able to talk to them before they finalized what they wanted to do, I could have advised them, you know, you don't really need to add over here, you need to add over there, or you don't need a new building, you need to renovate. Or, uh, you know, you're, you're throwing good men after bad by staying on your old campus. You, you, you're, you're, you've outgrown everything. In other words, the architect, if, they were the, if, if the architect is in position of being a trusted advisor, you will get to your client early before they need an architect. They help right. them with fundamental decisions. George Kassebaum, uh, again, one of the founders, always talked about it. He was president of the AI National AIA for a year. <clears throat> he said the problem with architects is they withdraw into their, in those days, drafting room. They want to sit quietly and design. He said, you need to get out of your drafting room and out into society, out into your client's business and learn and understand what they do and how to deal with it. <clears throat> that advice that you give, that, that early advice will build fast friends and get you a lot of work. But you have to earn your way into it. I'm, I'm loving, I, I can see comments here. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we did have this one. Jeff, should I read this one? Yeah, yeah go for if, it. If you, were starting, if you were starting over today as a sole proprietor or practitioner, I don't know which one is it, I always feel. Anyway, how would you go about finding good clients? How would you, especially the repeat clients, I guess? Well, that's that's the $64 question, isn't it? <laughs> um, you know, I, I think first I have to know what I want. Who am I? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I would probably, to be honest, I'd probably find, I'd probably test a marketplace and find out what's going on before I decided what I wanted to be. I might find that uh, these days, that uh, being a, a green architecture practitioner, sustainable design practitioner is, is cuts across all clients, that all clients have become interested in this, this, this as an example. And so I wouldn't just open my shop and say I'm a green architect. I'd have to know about what green architecture is. So before I had the audacity to open my own practice, maybe I'd need to study up on green architecture and understand how to actually create green buildings besides what the magazines show me. Uh, there are cookbook green buildings, and then there are green buildings that are designed from the beginning with a BIM modeling, and then soft, great new software that you can apply to the BIM model to help you stay on track for certain green goals. So I'd have to become good at that before I could sell it. But before I got good at it, I'd have to understand, is that my market? Maybe I want to be... Um, uh, public housing expert, affordable housing expert. Well, I'd have to really be good at it first before I open my office. So I'd have to, you have to be, you have to have something to sell besides just, hey, I want to be an architect. Uh, you remember the old, I think it was a, in the New Yorker magazine or somewhere, an old one panel cartoon. And uh, two people were standing there with cocktails in their hands. That's that's in the days before people drank wine. And uh, 
one was saying to the other, well, what would I do if I inherited a million dollars? Oh, <laughs> I probably practice architecture until it was all gone. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Variations on that. What if I won the lottery? Yep. Mm-hmm. Starting a firm, you have to have an, a, a, some, some ideas about who you are and what you want to sell and that the marketplace is ready for that. Maybe, uh, maybe you don't want to focus on green. Maybe you want a sustainable design. Maybe you want to focus on affordable housing. Maybe you want to focus on um, niche high-end housing that fits the, the, with, with wealthy clients that tend to pay well. It's a great marketplace if you can get in it, but you have to build a reputation. How do you do that? You probably have to start with another firm and, and learn the ropes and understand what the clients want. In other words, you, before you start, you have to know where you want to be and you have to know what the market is. Helma's idea was, I want to learn everything. I want to be everything. I want to be whatever the client wants me to be, uh, not in a superficial way, because I can learn by how do I learn. And I'll tell you the other thing, big giant mistakes that architects make. It's viewing the client as an opportunity to exercise creativity and design instead of viewing the client as a client that needs some problem solved in order to have a a building to live in, work in, to, to heal people in, whatever it is. So if you don't put your clients first, I think you'll always struggle. Clients, do clients exist for architects or do architects exist for clients? I think that's one of the things we've got upside down, frankly. And the, which, the magazine, the, the magazine and the, and the, the, whether the magazines are on paper as they used to be or whether they're online as they, as they are now, they celebrate edgy design and the newest fashion and design and somebody doing something that looks unusual. But all of it, I find, it's, it's celebrating uh, something new and different instead of something that's, that's deeply satisfying and deeply resolving a, a client problem. I mean, look at this again, exhibit A. This is great design. I'm trying to get it on the screen there. Yep, perfect. Great design. You can see it's an apple, right? Let's see. There's an apple on there. (laughs) Uh, Because he really, Steve Jobs just didn't set out to compete with the other uh, uh, smartphone makers. He set out to to make something so wonderful that it would catapult his company into the front ranks, and it did. Uh, that's great design. So you have to be, you have to offer something that really is great and you have to be organized enough to be able to deliver it. That means steady work and good people. Uh, it's difficult, but it's not impossible. You know, design takes a lot of hard work, but you have to have somebody around that's going to get the work and somebody that's going to mm-hmm. take care of the, the billing and so on that you trust. Um, so that you, you can focus on what you do the best. So I know of many small firms that have uh, a sole practitioner with some very well-regarded either employees or consultants, 1099s as you called them, who do a pretty good job because they build a trusting relationship just like you want to do with your clients. It can be done. There are advantages, let me just say, you know, you don't have to be an HOK to be successful. Uh, smaller firms have advantages. What are they? Anybody? What Flexibility. Are Flexible. Can turn on a dime. We've decided that we're going to become BIM experts. We decided on Tuesday and by Friday, everybody's got the new BIM software, and we're all taking courses and learning how to use it. We've decided we're going to become the best green architect in uh, our in our town or our city or our state or our country and boom we've got the whole firm lined up around it because call everybody together in one room in one room and one table and say this is what we're going to do and here's why so that flexibility is something the big firms do not have so there are some disadvantages to size but there's some great advantages to being small and what i would call nimble let me. We're getting close to the top of the hour, and uh, obviously we need to be respectful of everybody's time. So maybe, um, 
<laughs> there you go. Maybe um, we can kind of wind it down a little bit with a question that's related to the one that's on the screen right now. Mark, I saw Mark LePage ask this about the build your brand strategy, building your story around a single ideal client. You were just talking about if you were starting out as a sole proprietor, you want to figure out what you want to do first, right? Yeah. And and you mentioned being a green architect. Yeah. Uh, so go out and find those clients, I assume, that are looking for, you know, that value green architecture. Yeah. Um, if, if we're starting out as a sole practitioner, sole proprietor, do we need to find the ideal client for whatever it is that we want to do, as you described it, and then become the best out there at solving that problem? Or is there a different way to approach that? Well, I, I think, you know, let, let me just let's back up a little bit. Okay. If, if you want to start your own firm, if you haven't yet started it, you're, you're obviously, you're in the practice somewhere. You're working with somebody else or you, sure. Maybe you maybe you work for HOK and you want to get out. I don't No, That's probably not it. Uh, <laughs> you need to know what the market is that you're going to, that you're going to serve. Right. Uh, you want to work locally. You want to work nationally because that's another whole big strategy now because of the, the, the web. Uh, do you want to serve baseball clients and so on? And, and let's say you want to be a baseball designer. Uh, HOK got into that field. One man, one man, Ron Lubinsky, began to attend Major League Baseball owners meetings as a guest, as an observer. And he heard them talk about baseball and then began to understand the business of baseball. It took him a couple of years to understand their business proposition. How do I sell tickets, sell hot dogs and, and uh, sell TV rights? And how do I, how do I um, make a level playing field with the other teams in my league and so on? And uh, Ron came up with, as he listened to all of this, you realize that ticket sales were lagging, that the ticket sales weren't enough to build stadiums anymore, that, that, that the that ball teams had to go to their local cities to get subsidies. And he thought of an idea. And basically the idea was luxury boxes. He said, what if you created another level of attendance seating for people? This was Lubinsky's idea. And, um, uh, the thing took off like wildfire. Now, almost every major baseball and football venue in the professional leagues has a um, has a luxury box level somewhere. And people are, you know, instead of getting hot dogs, you get, I don't know, sushi. And uh, you pay a lot more. And, you, and big companies rent rooms. That changed the dynamics of the business of baseball because – an architect bothered to understand the game from the business standpoint so well that he could make a, a fundamental improvement over it that manifests itself in design. That took two to three years for Lubinsky to do that before he was able to convince one owner to change his mind. So if you do this and you don't know anything about baseball when you start, you're going to have to eat with mom and dad or somebody for three years. Until you understand it, so it's probably better that you have, that you're well grounded first in something. Uh, and if, if you don't, if you'd say, "Gee, I'd like to design uh, stadiums," that's a long shot. Uh, start out with something that where you can probably make a better inroads sooner. Uh, you know, there's only there's only a few professional stadiums in the world, but every city has schools and hospitals and churches and courthouses and uh, public housing and on and on. Find something uh, that you want to work on and you know something about already, and then take some time to assess the marketplace for it. And you'd be amazed how quickly you can learn and how quickly you can become acquainted with people, especially these days with the web and how much you can learn by surfing the web. And uh, instead of shoe leather and knocking on doors, how much you can do Just with a few mouse clicks. You know, there's something really profound, I think, in that story that 
It's it's a great. I think it is maybe it's the perfect way to wrap up this conversation. But when you know you said he spent the time with the owners, he learned the owners' business, and he figured out a way to transform their business. And I yeah. think if we if we take that mindset and we say who who's my who is my client, what is their business, or if it's a residential, what you know what's their life? How is it that my work? as an architect is going to transform their business? How is it that my work is going to transform their life? There's no way that at the end of that equation, if you have transformed their business or transformed their life, that they don't see value in what you do. Do you agree with that? Yes. Yes, I do. It's maybe a good way to, are we, uh, I think we're right there, aren't we? We're, we're, we're right there. And I, I appreciate you telling that, that story, right here at the end, uh, at least for me, I don't know. I, you know, this is, this is one of the beauties of hosting, co-hosting a show. You know, I get to be a little bit selfish about it, but I, I think, um, for me that, that is, that's a phenomenal lesson, right? If we're able to learn and understand our clients, their business, their lives, et cetera, to the point that our work can transform what they do, then you become the trusted advisor to your client. Yeah. Then yeah. you then they treat you as a as a uh, as an equal. You're helping them operate their business or their university or their school, whatever it is, their hospital, because you know so much about it and how it manifests itself in terms of the design. That's real design. That's what yeah. I when I say it's real design. That's what that that's what I mean. That's that's this iPhone stuff, it really, it looks good, but it's, it really works well on the inside and it, it helps people accomplish things that they need and want to do. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I've loved this. Oh, thank, thank you. Yeah. We really appreciate you being here. Um, again, to everybody out there, first of all, the book is, is uh, designing a world-class architecture firm. So you can pick that up wherever books are sold. Um, the, there it is. There you go. You can't have that copy, but there are other copies <laughs> out there that you can, that you can get. Um, also, uh, you can, you can find Patrick in episode 328 or 332 of the Entree Architect podcast. Uh, and I would encourage you to subscribe also to the Build Smart podcast. Uh, Patrick yeah. and Mark, are having some great conversations, some great storytelling. Uh, you'll hear uh, a lot of the things that you've heard today in this conversation. You'll just hear expanded upon in in those episodes, and I, I'm thoroughly enjoying that um, uh, that podcast. You're doing a great job. Mark's doing a great job. For those of you who uh, aren't familiar, Demetrius Lynch, who is uh, producing that, is doing a, a bang up job producing that. Uh, and I, I think it's a work of art. So, uh, yeah. Patrick, thank you for all of those things. Thank you for sharing your your 50 years of experience with us. And thank you for spending this hour with us. It, it's been a real pleasure. and I've, I've loved every minute of it. I love all the comments. So thank, thank you, everybody I can't see. Thank you for being here and listening. And uh, uh, I feel like I've accomplished something in this hour. So thank you. Oh, you, you definitely have. You definitely have. We appreciate that. And, and to all of you out there, we really do appreciate you being a part of this conversation. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, this is a great opportunity with all of this technology that's in front of us to have this conversation with the three of us on the screen, to bring in your questions and comments, to let you all have the ability to have your own side conversation, uh, at the same time. And the fact that no matter where you are, you're on Facebook right now, you're on YouTube, you're on Twitch, you're on LinkedIn. Uh, these these, uh, uh, these things, they turn into posts on all of those platforms and they live on. You can continue to comment. You can continue to ask questions and keep the conversation going in all of those places. So uh, we appreciate all of you, uh, whether you're on Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube or Twitch, or if you're Patrick or Catherine here on the screen with me, we appreciate everybody that's been a part of this conversation. And, um, and, uh, we look forward to the next opportunity to get together here for context and clarity live.
And so with that, um, my uh, hope is that all of you will be well and you'll stay safe and you'll keep those of you closest to you safe and well. There's a lot of craziness still going on around the world. Um, So take care of yourselves and those that you care about and uh, breathe a little bit tonight. Take a little bit of time to relax and rejuvenate and let's get ready to do it again tomorrow, everybody. So thanks, everybody. We'll see you again soon. Thanks for listening to this week's Context and Clarity Live episode. Selfishly, I love these conversations because I get to be the go-between between you and some really incredible guests. To that end, I want to know what you think about today's guest. Message me on the socials. I'm really easy to find. I'm Jeff underscore Eccles everywhere. If you happen to run across a white-haired chiropractor from Austin, Texas, yeah, that's not me. I'm the other Jeff Eccles. Oh, and if you have an idea for a future guest, tell me who it is and why you think they'd be a good guest for one of these conversations. Maybe we can get them on a future episode. Thanks again for listening. I appreciate you, and I'll see you next week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us. Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.